Well, the, the Lord did bless me with a nine-point buck yesterday, and so that was fun. Now he has blessed me with two days' worth of work cutting and cleaning, so that'll be my afternoon and end tomorrow. Uh, well, good morning. If you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 10 once again. Still making our way through Mark uh, 10 here. For some reason, uh, maybe you've noticed this, human beings need to be told things more than once. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, I don't know what it is, but I, I feel like I have to be told things several times before it really sinks in. Uh, my dad taught me how to drive a stick shift vehicle, uh, and I'll tell you, it didn't all come together at once. Uh, it's not that I didn't have the basic information on the first go-around, uh, but I just didn't put it all together that easily. Uh, before I mastered it, there was definitely some stalled engines along the way. Uh, I needed to be told how to do it more than once. It's not just true for driving stick. Uh, it's also true for even the deepest lessons of life. Uh, some of the most important truths of our faith, we've got to hear more than once. We've got to continue to hear it. Uh, we learn by repetition. Sometimes we need repetition so that we can learn things. Uh, other times we need repetition just so that we can remember them uh, to carry them out when we should. This morning, we see Jesus engaging in repetition with his disciples. And it is concerning things that they really will need to understand. Uh, and although these truths may be familiar to us, we really need to be reminded of them. We need to call it back to mind again even this morning. Let's read our passage. We're going to cover just three verses. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. I'll start in verse 32 and we'll go down through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Let's pray. Lord, we have been praising you this morning for your work for us in going to the cross to accomplish our salvation. And we praise you again. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. We ask that you would help us as we look into your word Capture our hearts once again with the beauty of the work you have done. In your name we pray. Amen. As we look at these few verses, one of the key things this text is calling us to is to trust the Son of Man who was humiliated to death and rose again. We want to trust the Son of Man who was humiliated unto death and raised again. Our passage here, verse 32, tells us that Jesus and his followers are on the road. They're still en route. It says here that they are on their way up to Jerusalem. Mark is reminding us here of the journey that Jesus is on. Jesus started his 
public ministry in the northern parts of Israel. He started in Galilee, you may recall. Um, We spent the better part of the entire last year going through the Galilean ministry of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Uh, In those few years uh, that Jesus ministered in Galilee, he gave himself regularly to preaching and to teaching, to casting out demons, healing those who were sick. Uh, He called people to faith in himself and to repentance in light of the imminent kingdom of God. And throughout Mark's gospel, we have uh, seen that Jesus has inspired awe in the audience to which he preached, uh, as the Father also authenticated the ministry of his Son by uh, the miracles that he did. Uh, We have seen throughout Mark's gospel the rising popularity of Jesus as he ministers, um, sometimes even pulling crowds of thousands who stayed for days and outstayed their food supply. Uh, as Mark opened up his gospel in the first chapter and the chapters that follow, he has again and again put before us who Jesus is, uh, statements of declaration about who Jesus is, uh, descriptions of what he does that point to who Jesus is. I want to run through just a little bit from chapter 1 of Mark as to who Jesus is that Mark's put before us. Verse 1, Mark tells us that he's the Son of God. Again in verse 1, that he is the Christ. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is the one who will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, Jesus is the one who from heaven is commended by the Father in his baptism and the one who has the Spirit descend on him there. He is anointed by the Spirit in his ministry. Verse 13, he is the one who is victorious over Satan in temptation. Nobody else has been successful at that, only Jesus. Verse 22, Jesus is the one who preaches, teaches with authority, unlike the leaders of his day. From the mouth of a demon... Verse 25, he is the Holy One of God. The demon's terrified by him. Verse 26, he is the one who has the authority to cast out demons. Verse 34, he's the one able to heal all sorts of diseases. And verse 41, we see that he's the one who has compassion on us in our sickness and weakness. Uh, All of that is just there in chapter 1. That's not even going on to other chapters to see Jesus forgiving sins and calming seas, feeding thousands miraculously and and raising the dead. Uh, The miracles are multiplied and we get to see who Jesus is in this gospel. Uh, The mighty works of God are multiplied in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, John ends his gospel in Mark, or excuse me, in John 21, verse 25. He says, now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Uh, Jesus' ministry is not sparsely scattered with uh, miracles. Uh, it's replete. Uh, there are miracles all through the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was great in popularity, uh, even if those who followed him didn't understand who he was. Although Jesus is popular with the crowds, as we've seen in Mark's gospel, we also see that there is a rising opposition to Jesus and his ministry. It starts as early as chapter 2. The the religious leaders charge Jesus with blaspheming 
for telling a man that his sins are forgiven. And they ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know that's a pretty good question. The Pharisees challenged Jesus later on the matter of fasting and then on the Sabbath. And by as early as the first parts of chapter 3, we see that the Pharisees and the Herodians are plotting to kill Jesus. They are conspiring to put him to death. The opposition grows in Mark's gospel, and we've seen it flashing and flaring in different spots. Uh, we're going to see it reach a point of escalation and climax in the chapters to follow. It's remarkable that Jesus never shrank back from this opposition. Uh, he pressed into it. Jesus knows exactly where this opposition is leading, but he presses on every step of the way. And at this point in Mark's gospel, uh, where we arrive at today, he is already done with his ministry in Galilee. His chapter of ministry where he's there for two to three years is done. Uh, and shockingly, Matthew records that the majority of the people he ministered to didn't believe in him. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 and following, Jesus is marveling over their unbelief, saying that if places like Bethsaida and Chorazin, uh, Capernaum, if, if the miracles that had been done in their eyes had been done in places like Tyre or Sudan, those places would have repented. He says, if the miracles that you saw were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they'd still be around. I mean, that's shocking. Imagine the hardness of heart that must have been there for them to have rejected the ministry of Jesus. It's interesting, Jesus was very popular, and yet people didn't get him, and they would turn uh, on him on a fateful weekend in Jerusalem. Jesus was no, under no pretense about what he would face when he arrived at Jerusalem. We see him again, he's on the way. Uh, since the start of chapter 10, Jesus has shifted his ministry towards Judea, He's been on the road leading him to Jerusalem. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, the Via Dolorosa. Uh, it means literally the sorrowful road. Uh, it's considered to be the path that was taken by Jesus from the judgment seat of Pilate through Jerusalem and to his cross at Calvary. Uh, but the reality, and others have pointed this out, is that the Via Dolorosa actually starts far earlier than Pilate's judgment seat. Uh, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem uh, and even begins that long journey to the cross while he's yet in Galilee. That sorrowful road goes at least back to Galilee, but honestly, it goes all the way back to his conception. Uh, when God steps into this world, takes on human flesh, he is on the path to the cross. Uh, that is the point of his ministry. He is coming to faithfully carry this out. He's going to be performing miracles along the way. He's going to be teaching. He's going to be preaching. Uh, he's going to be casting out demons. And all of this is verifying who he is as he is heading to the cross. There is a sober moment in our passage this morning. We see that in our text. I'll read it again. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. I wonder if there was something of an awe over this moment. They're going up to Jerusalem, I'll note, because uh, Jerusalem is a higher elevation. Uh, the temple is on a mountain. Uh, Psalms 120 through 134 are titled Psalms of Ascent. 
These are psalms that the worshipers would sing as they're on their way up to the temple. I wonder what psalms were on Jesus' heart as he was heading to Jerusalem. Uh, from this point, it's really actually only a matter of a couple weeks before Psalm 22, verse 1, will be on the lips of Jesus from the cross, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem here. And those who are with Jesus are amazed. And those who are following behind, likely a larger group, they're afraid. Everybody but Jesus must be wondering what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Jesus has no doubt about what's going to happen when they get there. So he tells his disciples the truth again. He draws the twelve close to him, and he explains what's going to happen. Now this is the third time that Jesus speaks so directly to the events that will take place in Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry was full of parables. He taught by parables. We see that he does that again and again. But when it came to speaking about what would happen to him in Jerusalem, he just told it like it is. He said it straight. And the disciples still didn't get it. But he tells them again. The first time he tells it to them is in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He tells it again in Mark 9, verse 30 to 31. Each of those times, he tells them pretty clearly what's going to happen. Uh, but this time, Jesus speaks with greater specificity. He gets more specific on what's going to happen. Uh, he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is verse 33. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. I think the first thing we should notice from what Jesus says here is the title that he gives to himself. As he describes what's going to happen to him, he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, we've considered this title a little bit already uh, before. Son of Man is how God regularly referred to Ezekiel. God called Ezekiel Son of Man, and that seemed to point to the, the prophetic role of Ezekiel. And probably there is something to that here, that Jesus is the Son of Man in that way. He's certainly a prophet. He's being a prophet here in the way that he's foretelling these events. Uh, we saw as well that Son of Man can also refer to the fact that Jesus is, uh, he's taken on human flesh. He was born of Mary. He's taken on our flesh in that sense, in the incarnation. He's also a Son of Man. Uh, but, but while, excuse me, while both of those are true, I don't think that's the central meaning. Uh, in the book of Daniel, we get a vision of the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days. Uh, and that passage speaks in advance of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Daniel records here, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that cannot, excuse me, shall not be destroyed. This prophecy in the book of Daniel speaks of a figure who comes to the Ancient of Days. Now, the Ancient of Days is clearly referring to God. Uh, so who's the Son of Man figure? He seems to be pretty important. A kingdom is going to be given to him that will never be destroyed. Uh, 
Uh, and it's going to be over all other kingdoms. You know, the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, they all had their heyday. They all had their moment in the sun where they got to rule their area. But each one of them fell in turn. You know, Rome was supposed to be the eternal city, uh, but didn't stop the vandals from coming in and sacking it for three days in 410. There is nobody else who this passage in Daniel 7 can refer to but Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the one to whom all things are going to be given over to. We saw that in Colossians 1 a couple years ago when we were studying there. Jesus, who's in the image of the invisible God, is the one uh, through whom God created all things and uh, the one to whom all things are created for. Colossians 1, 15 to 16. But don't take my word for it on identifying the Son of Man. Jesus himself ascribes this uh, to his own identity. We'll see that. You can flip with me if you want towards the end of Mark's gospel as Jesus is being tried in chapter 14, verses 60 to 64. Mark 15, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of, uh, of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. If you'll notice in verse 62, uh, Jesus describes himself, 61 and 62, as the Son of Man. The son of, excuse me, yeah, 62 is Son of Man. He's seated at the right hand of power. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. Those are all, that's language that comes right out of Daniel chapter 7. There Jesus himself is saying that he is that Son of Man. He has a kingdom that will not pass away. Jesus understands himself to be the Son of Man coming on the clouds and the religious leaders charge him with blasphemy. Jesus knows who he is. And if Jesus is the Son of Man, what would be fitting for one so great? What honor should be given to the one who fulfills such a magnificent prophecy? What glory should be given the current and future and everlasting king of the universe? I tell you, he doesn't deserve anything that follows in this passage. Out of everything mentioned in verses 33 to 34 of Mark chapter 10, uh, the only thing that doesn't fit is the Son of Man. He doesn't justly belong there. Maybe some criminal deserves to be treated the way that Jesus describes here, but not him. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David, the rightful heir of all things, doesn't deserve anything of what he's telling his disciples that he is about to walk into. Jesus will inherit all things. Everything will be reconciled to God when all is said and done. He is the rightful heir, and he will have all things. But we see in our passage that before he receives what is rightfully his, he will carry out the Father's plan for salvation. 
Jesus will willingly submit himself to everything described in these verses and more in order to save us from our desperate condition, in order to save us from our sin. Let's look for a moment in a little more detail at what Jesus says of what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. First thing he says is that he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. So he's going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. Shocking. One of his own, one of the twelve that he has invested in for three years, is going to betray him to his enemies. Next, he says, they will condemn him to death. Jesus, the only righteous one that's ever walked this planet, is going to receive an unjust verdict of condemnation. Next, it says that they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Although Jesus is the rightful heir of the throne of David, he's going to be handed over to the enemies of God by his own people. We shouldn't let that atrocity escape us. These leaders are going to hand over the rightful king to their enemies in order that they will kill him. I mean, could you imagine if the people of Israel in 1 Samuel, or in 1 Kings, or excuse me, 2 Samuel here, could you imagine if the people of Israel took David, their king, and bound him hand and foot, and took him over to Gath for the Philistines to kill him? Could you imagine that? That's insane. But something more atrocious took place in the life of Jesus. The rightful heir of the throne is handed over to the Gentiles ruling over Israel for them to execute him. Jesus continues, and they will mock him. Jesus is mocked by those who arrest him. We see in Luke chapter 22, verse 63 to 65, he's mocked by Herod and his soldiers. Remember, they dress him in purple, put a crown of thorns on him and beat him. And he's mocked by Pilate soldiers in Mark chapter 15, verse 16 to 20. I'll read the passage at least out of Mark chapter 15 here. Uh, chapter 15, verse 16. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's quarter. If you're, if you're following along, this is Mark chapter 15, verse 16. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak uh, and put on his own clothes and they led him away to crucify him. The mockery doesn't end there. Once Jesus is crucified and hanging publicly before all, he is mocked by the passerbys, people just passing by. Uh, They're mocking him. He's mocked by the chief priests, and he's even mocked by those who are crucified along with him. You know, there is something especially grating about being mocked. If somebody makes fun of you for something you did or something about you, uh, it can just get under your skin. But here is the rightful king of Israel, the rightful ruler of God's people, and he's willingly receiving mockery. Jesus would have had every right to empty heaven of every cherubim and seraphim and wipe these jokers out. But he patiently endured their mockery. 
Had he avenged himself at that moment, we would be eternally lost. Jesus had set, had a joy set before him that empowered him to endure the shame of the cross, Hebrews 12 tells us. And there was so much shame foisted upon Jesus on that day. The next thing that Jesus says here back in Mark chapter 10 is that they're going to spit on him. Have you ever been spit on? You ever had the experience of being spit on? Getting spit on is not a compliment. The Greek word here for spitting is pituo. And even in the, the sound of that word, it, you, you feel like you're spitting just saying it. Uh, Jesus is going to be spit on. Uh, in grade school, I once sat by the window. I had an hour-long bus ride into school and an hour-long bus ride uh, home. Rode the yellow Twinkie for the better part of my life, it felt like. And uh, so driving home, we're riding home on this long bus ride, and my buddy's sitting right next to me in the seat, and uh, the window's down on the bus, and he ends up with a bunch of phlegm that he's got to get rid of. So he leans over me, you know, gets in front of me, and he spits out the window. Nobody had ever told him the saying, don't spit into the wind. Uh, that spit went outside the window, did a 180 degrees, and in God's mysterious providence, came back in the same window and hit the poor fool sitting behind him. Uh, I mean, it was a direct hit. I mean, B-5, you sank my battleship. Uh, and, and there I was. It was all in my hair, you know. And what do you do at that point? So I think I got some lined paper and tried to smear it off. And uh, You know, although it was an accident, it was still kind of embarrassing, if I remember. Uh, you know, it's bad enough when it's an accident. When somebody spits on somebody else on purpose, it's generally a sign of contempt. It can be a way of saying, I hate you. You are disgusting to me. We see in the Gospels that Jesus is spit on by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Later, we see that the Roman soldiers are spitting on him together, having a whole army spit on him. The leaders of the Jewish people and the army of the enemy spit upon our Lord. But the scorn and the mocking and derision don't stop there. Jesus says next, they will flog him and kill him. Jesus was scourged with whips prior to his crucifixion. The physical suffering of Jesus' crucifixion was immense. And I'm not going to belabor the details of his physical suffering this morning, but it's enough to know that it was excruciating. And what a strange thing. All of this, the Son of Man was subjected to. One so great and exalted, so worthy of everlasting praise, humbled himself and took this upon himself. You know, here, Jesus doesn't even mention the agony of being separated from his Father on the cross. That's not even mentioned here. As Jesus is taking our sin upon himself. But Jesus does all of this willingly. He walks right into it. He has carried out his ministry in Galilee, and now he's on his way to Jerusalem. How many opportunities did Jesus have for leaving the mission that he had been given? How often 
did the immaturity of the disciples stand in such a stark contrast to his humble determination. I mean, we're going to see that next week, as, as plain as can be. Why would the Son of Man ever continue in this mission when he knew it would cost him everything that it was going to cost him? I mentioned Hebrews 12 already. I want to read the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The preacher says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured it. Through Jesus' suffering and death, he was dealing with our sin. There is nothing that man could do to atone for his own sin. You know, a man who is sinful can't pay his own debt. Everything's been tainted by sin. Humanity was under the curse of sin and incapable of saving himself. Jesus came to win a bride for himself. Romans 3, he came to make God both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He came to fulfill the mission that he and his father had agreed on before the world ever existed. In the face of all the scorn and the mocking and the derision and the torture that Jesus is going to be enduring, he continues with determination. In fact, he despised that shame. He did not count it worthy of changing his course. He endured it. He despised it all for the joy set before him. He knew that it was a necessary part of his mission, but he also knew that it wasn't the end of his mission. It wasn't the end of it. The last thing that Jesus predicts here is in, after three days he will raise. All of the shame of the cross is overwhelmed by the triumph of the resurrection and the ascension and Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. Yes, the Jews and the Romans will put the Son of God to death on the cross, but the Father is going to vindicate his Son through the resurrection. Jesus will rise from the dead, and he is our hope of resurrection. He is our hope for life beyond this life. He is our assurance of that reality. Because he has tasted death for us, we don't have to fear death. Death was not the final chapter for Jesus, and it will not be the final chapter for us either. The second death has no power over those who have trusted in Jesus. Revelation 20, verse 14 to 15, describes the lake of fire and the second death. Uh, that is not our home, as we are in Christ. What a glorious gospel that Jesus came to accomplish and to spread to the ends of the earth. What a glorious gospel that has saved us and that we've been given to steward in our day. So what do we do in light of this? What do we do in light of what we've seen here? Now, there's all sorts of things. This should flow into an uncountable number of ways into our lives, uh, but I just list a few here for your consideration. In light of what we've read in this passage, we should trust him. We should trust Jesus. He is able to save us. The Son of God did not fail at his mission. He did not reject it. He followed it through to the end. He has accomplished what he has sent, been sent out to do. 
In the greatest display of humility and bravery, Jesus continued in this plan for our salvation. Now that he has finished that work, we can trust him. He is trustworthy. Uh, if we are tempted to doubt whether or not we're going to make it to heaven, we can and must look to the cross where it has been secured for us. We can find peace by trusting in Jesus. Next, we stand before him humbled. I mean, think about it. Who would do this for us? Who would be so great and yet humble himself to this point for us? Who would do that for us? Paul says in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Get that. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, it wasn't because we were so lovely that God just had to have us. There wasn't anything pretty about us in our sin. It was God's great mercy. It was the depth of his love that reached out to take that which was unlovely and through his son to make us lovely. God's love is displayed that he died for us while we were still weak, while we were ungodly. He sent his son for us. Another thing we do, we cherish him. In light of what God has done for us, we should cherish him above anything else in this world. He is infinitely worthy of our love and our affection. If God has loved us in this way, we should turn and love him in response. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. We honor him. Uh, if he has done this to save us from our sin, then uh, it's right that we turn and we honor him. Part of our honoring him will look like forsaking our sin, the very sin that drove him to the cross. We honor him as well by living our lives to his glory in every aspect of our lives. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. One last application here. We sing, we sing his praises. We sing to him. It is right for us to sing to God in Christ. We lift up our voices every Sunday morning, but I hope that you're singing throughout the week as well. Uh, we don't just have to sing together. It's delightful to sing together. I love it. Even this morning, how sweet it was to sing together. We can sing on the car ride home or at home when we get there or in the morning or at night. Just don't wake the kids. Uh, you, you can sing anywhere you go. Sing praises to this one who has done this for us. Christ has died for us. He has been raised for us. And our hearts can trust him now. Our hearts can trust him through eternity. I'll ask Elizabeth to come and play and the men to prepare for communion. Uh, we're